Hi, you're listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network, produced at 3CR Community Radio on Wurundjeri Country. And I'm Nikki Stott. Later in the show today, Jacob Gamble speaks with John Cook from the Monash Climate Change Communication Research Hub about how political parties and the media put out climate misinformation. But first up, Priya Kunjan speaks with Bayami Williamson on the disproportionate vulnerability of Indigenous peoples to climate change and mitigation strategies. And we are joined now by Bayami Williamson, who is a researcher and a PhD, a research associate and PhD candidate at the Australian National University, who's speaking with us about the disproportionate impact of climate change on Indigenous peoples and the need for Indigenous-centred disaster management and climate change mitigation in uh, strategies in Australia. Bayami, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Pleasure. So um, before we jump into the interview proper, would you like to introduce yourself in a little more detail? Sure. So, um, yeah, Bobby Williamson. So as you said, I'm at the Australian National University, a research associate, PhD candidate. Um, I'm a Uwaleo man, so I'm from, my people are from northwest New South Wales, and so I live out here in a a small um, little Aboriginal community called Gadooga. Um, up near the Queensland border. Uh, we're up in the middle of the Murray-Darling Basin, but my mother also comes from um, northwest Queensland, from Concurry, and her family go up into the Gulf of Carpentaria. So it's just nice to have that background. Yeah, absolutely, and gives a good grounding for the discussion that we're going to have today. Um, so in an article for The Conversation published earlier this month, you discussed the disproportionate impact of climate change on Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities with respect to the recent catastrophic flooding across Queensland and New South Wales. And I was wondering if you could speak to this disproportionate impact and some of the socio- socioeconomic as well as cultural effects that such climate change disasters have on Indigenous peoples. Sure. So the disproportionate impact that we talk about when we talk about um, yeah, how uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are impacted by disaster. So generally, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people live in areas that are more prone to disasters, um, areas that are like a central uh, in interior Australia, areas that are much more prone to things like drought and um, um, and dust storms, a lot more populations throughout northern Australia, which are obviously much more um, prone to cyclones and, um, and along the coastal areas, um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people live generally in areas that are more prone to fires and floods. So we've seen that absolutely during the 2019-20 bushfires that impacted large amounts of country and also huge populations of Aboriginal people. And we're seeing it again in the floods. And in particular, that area of like the northern rivers of New South Wales is a huge um, Aboriginal population in there. Um, it's one of the highest density Aboriginal populations in all of New South Wales throughout that whole region. There's a lot of discrete Aboriginal communities. And these are the areas that are... Um, that are obviously being really, really, you know, catastrophically impacted by the by the flood. So um, disproportionate in terms of the sheer number of people, as well as the proportion of the population. Like around Lismore, Kempsey, Ballina, um, the Aboriginal population is, you know, in some places exceeds twelve percent of the general population. Um, and you compare that with the national average of sort of just just a bit over three percent. You're talking about people who are sort of three to four more times likely to be impacted. So there's the number of people impacted, but there's also the profile of the population being really, really young, which means that 
Um, more of the children impacted by disasters in these areas, more of them are going to the Aboriginal because we've got a very youthful population profile. Um, and so the number of people, the age and demographic of the population, and finally, as you said, the um, cultural and spiritual impacts of people who are inherently attached to country um, when catastrophe befalls that country, well, then they experience a unique grief that, you know, Western modalities of like mental health um, and counselling and that kind of thing, those supports are just inadequate. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, I guess on those cultural impacts as well, I was speaking with Tishiko King, um, who's a proud Torres Strait Islander woman um, and organiser with Seed Mob as well about, you know, the fact that losing land with rising sea levels because of climate change in the Torres Straits, for example, is disrupting connection to land into country. And so that is, you know... Um, it's really important to keep in mind not just those impacts that um, that people face in terms of socioeconomic uh, challenges, but also the spiritual and cultural ones as well. Um, so in 2020, you presented a powerful testimony at the Royal Commission into National Natural Disaster Arrangements in the wake of the 2019-2020 bushfire season. And this was based on a submission that you co-authored with Dr. Jessica Weir and Dr. Francis Markham at the Australian National University, which had a focus on the importance of cultural land management. And the report from that inquiry was tabled in October of 2020. So we've had a bit of time since then. And I'm um, hoping you could share some of your thoughts on the recommendations that it can on addressing and responding to natural disasters and also progress on implementation till date um, with particular emphasis on Indigenous peoples and inclusion of Indigenous knowledges? Yes, so the Royal Commission was an interesting one. Um, uh, The Royal Commission was really um, a great opportunity to have that national platform and to to sort of bring these issues to a very... um, yeah, a very willing audience, um, being people nationally and internationally who are really interested in this stuff. Um, and so that was great. The Royal Commission didn't really uh, provide the basis, um, um, well, certainly that I feel um, was needed to really push the agenda for increasing and um, better resourcing cultural imagination programs, like things like Aboriginal Ranger programs and that, and, and then things like that. Um, but it also, there's questions around whether or not it's the best place for it as well. What we did see in the Royal Commission and through the recommendations was, um, you know, very clear um, attempts from the Commonwealth to push cultural land management programs uh, onto the state. Now, that's a trend that we've been observing for the last, you know, five to seven years. Um, and when we... With that knowledge, well, then we can start to look at some of the state-based processes as well. So following the bushfires in Victoria, there was um, a couple of big, really uh, quite significant reports by the Inspector General of Emergency Management in New South Wales. There was an independent bushfire inquiry. Both of those have heaps more substantial findings and recommendations. And um, so I think it's really in the state-based inquiries that we find the, the, the most useful information um, both of them, I feel, did a pretty good job at highlighting some of the significant issues, made some pretty clear and strong recommendations. Um, and I think in terms of implementing those recommendations, it's quite uneven, though, because uh, in Victoria we see a lot of action and a lot of processes um, from the government, um, a lot of attempts by the government and government agencies to really
really do better, do more, engage with communities more on their own terms and to really address the structural barriers that, that, that they have themselves and within themselves. Um, in New South Wales, we see it as a much slower-moving beast. So um, I suppose it's just sit, still sitting and, and watching um, these things unfold and advocating where we can. Yeah, and I guess like seeing the uh, the responsibility kind of bounce between the state and federal level, um, as you mentioned, it is important at the state-based level to be able to do that more targeted inquiry and make recommendations that are more relevant to specific areas. Um, but I guess there's also the potential for uh, this, you know, shifting of responsibility to to, I guess, make um, action very difficult and kind of stagnate as well. Um, But your research has identified the exclusion of Indigenous peoples in national disaster resilience policies in Australia. And that article for the conversation I mentioned earlier included your proposal for the development of a national Indigenous disaster resilience framework. So how might such a framework be developed, especially um, in light of these shifting responsibilities? And what is needed to make this happen? Yeah, so this this framework that I've suggested, to me, it's absolutely essential. So we see there's a few national key kind of policy documents um, that operate in Australia. Things like there's a National Disaster Resilience Handbook, there's a National um, Disaster Resilience Framework, um, like the, de- developed by sort of um, the Commonwealth of Australia, uh, sorry, the Council of Australian Government, so it sits over all of them. And when you look at these national... Uh, disaster policy, disaster resilience policies and strategies, um, it's, there's just a, an almost criminal lack of engagement with Indigenous people. Um, you know, as, as, as uh, populations with unique profiles, as unique rights holders, as possessing sort of unique housing and land rights arrangements, um, you know, completely ignoring the role of community-controlled sectors and prescribed corporations, like, just... And, and ignoring Indigenous people's connection with country as well and what that means for them in times of disaster. So you, you see a complete absence, a removal of Indigenous peoples from these really critical key national policy instruments. And so what we see then is when... Um, the consequences of that is that when disasters do unfold, like they are currently in northern New South Wales in particular, you see policy responses that align with these strategies, but that, but that invariably make the disaster worse for Indigenous people. And you can look at things like how they um, design and provide emergency relief funding, for instance. So, you know, the, the, the packages that, they, that government, state and federal announce for emergency payments are centred around kind of like average household sizes. So in Australia, I think the average household size, according to the ABS, is like 2.6 um, 2. adults. So that's like two adults and a couple of children. So that's it's a weird way of thinking about it, sort of like 0.6 of an individual, but certainly in national statistics, that's how they um, design them. And the relief payments are designed according to that. But the but the profile of Indigenous housing is very, very different. It's, you know, it, it, it's, it, it's completely different. It's almost like, I think it's about 3.8 per household in Indigenous, um, the National Indigenous Housing Average. And so you see strategies, an emergency strategy is designed to fit non-Indigenous populations and they just are completely inadequate with the realities of Indigenous communities. And so this is why we need our own standalone National Indigenous Disaster Resilience Framework 
that draws out these issues, that can talk back to this big national policy landscape, and that kind of lays a foundation for when government, state and federal, design these relief um, systems, that they're, that they're doing it from an evidence base. They're doing it, um, you know, with a, with the knowledge of what 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 are the unique realities for Indigenous people that are going to, um, you know, um, as I said, make worse or actually be able to support them in times of disaster. So, um, and, and without having that focus just on our own communities, I feel like it'll just be subsumed and made absent again in these larger policy documents as they, as they will be reformed over the next few years. Yeah, definitely. And we will link people to that article in the conversation as well, because you also provided some links in there uh, to work that's currently going on, but also to kind of back up some of the important information you've shared with us. Now, just to wrap up, I was wondering if you wanted to, um, you know, give listeners the the opportunity to engage with any Indigenous-led initiatives, um, to learn more and also to take action. And uh, also, where can people find your own research? Yeah, so um, there's a few different organisations that are doing some really good work and you spoke um, about Tashiko and and Speedmob earlier. They're a fantastic organisation led by Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander young people, you know, really on the the front lines of advocating for, for, you know, climate change, um, you know, effective climate change policy. So really kind of support those. In the cultural land management space, there's, um, you know, Five Six Alliance Aboriginal Corporation, which... um, you know, is kind of the peak body to, to, to promote cultural burning throughout Australia. Um, so there's a couple of, uh, yeah, just a couple of organisations that, that that people can kind of look up and support. And, um, and yeah, my stuff is just on the website and or, or you can follow me on Twitter if you, if you want to and all that. Um, my research gets shared on there. But really, to me, the biggest thing that people can do, if you really want to get involved, if you really want to support people, write to your own member, you know, the emergency management planning in this country, um, some of the most important and critical emergency management plans are actually at the local level, regional level. So look at the local council, the local government emergency management plan. They're all required to have one. Look them up and and look for any mentions of Indigenous peoples, of Aboriginal peoples, of Aboriginal communities. If they're not, get in contact with your local council and ask them why not and tell them it's not good enough. And, and be, you know, write, write to your local member and ask them about what they're doing to the four cultural and management programs, Aboriginal ranger groups and that kind of thing. So just that, gra- that grassroots advocacy means a lot. Yeah, absolutely. And we love a concrete action to take. This is very, very clear. Um, Listeners can listen back to this later so that you know what to do. Write to your local member, check whether Aboriginal people have been actually consulted in these plans. Uh, Baimi, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us this morning. It's been really great to have you on. Yeah, thank you. Really appreciate it. So that was Baimi Williamson, a research associate and PhD candidate at the Australian National University, who is speaking with us about the disproportionate vulnerability of Indigenous peoples to climate change and the need for Indigenous-centred disaster management strategies in Australia. You're listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network. And up next, we're going to be speaking about how the Australian government and the Murdoch media are globally renowned for their neglect of the climate emergency. 
And misinformation on climate and climate policy has played a large part of this approach. So how do political parties and the media seek to benefit from incorrect or misconstrued information? And how do they put this out? Joining us now is John Cook, who is from the the Monash Climate Change Communication Research Hub. John, thanks for joining us this morning. Hi, Jacob. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. So let's start off. What are some common, common forms of climate miscommunication that we have seen in politics and the media? We uh, just published some research uh, a few months ago looking at what the, wor- the most common arguments uh, were over the last 20 years. We found the biggest category of climate misinformation was actually attacking uh, climate science, trying to erode public trust so that they were less trustful of science and climate models. And we also found that climate solutions were attacks on climate solutions were actually on the increase as well. They were becoming more prominent. And the latest trend we're seeing is an increase in greenwashing. Um, Organisations or businesses or governments selling themselves as being environmentally friendly when they're actually being harmful. Absolutely. It definitely rings a few bells there. Do you mind if I ask who are the main culprits? Are you allowed to to tell us on air? Well, our analysis was focusing on two big sources of climate misinformation, conservative think tank organisations and climate denier blogs. We found that conservative think tanks are a really prolific source of misinformation. They often generate the original arguments that then get disseminated through um, blogs or social media or by politicians or the media. Uh, and so that, that's kind of the wellspring of a lot of the um, mm. misinformation arguments that we see. Mm, interesting. And I know um, last night on Q&A, they actually had Gideon Rosner, who uh, some have called a climate denialist. I'm not, not putting anything out there on air. Um, but he also represents a conservative think tank. So do you think, in some sense, it kind of gives false legitimacy to people who don't actually have a lot of knowledge on climate change? Yeah, the the problem is when you um, when the media presents people from an organisation um, without going without disclosing whether they have any actual expertise to the general the general public they just see this person from a official standing organization and think well they must be an expert on this topic they they've got strong opinions and they're using lots of big words or they're quoting sources and 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 it might be that this they're a lawyer they have no climate science expertise or or they just don't have the relevant expertise and so fake experts are very persuasive um, and common form of misinformation Mm, absolutely. And turning the dial a bit now towards politics, because I know that we've we've heard a lot the past couple of years, um, the Prime Minister in particular saying, we're going to meet and beat um, our Paris targets and language like that. So how do you think political parties can benefit from misinformation around climate and climate policies? If the public want to see climate action, if they're on board with the issue of climate change and want to see us doing something and the government policy is inadequate, they're not doing enough, then misinformation can be used to deflect criticisms and basically cover themselves from their bad performance. An example would be uh, 
the argument you just mentioned, uh, our current government saying that they're, they're achieving our goals in reducing our emissions, one of the um, ways that they, they um, fudge the numbers is by including credits from park behaviour. So they're not actually reducing emissions now, they're including in our, our um, emission um, tally credits from the past. It's a bit like saying you're going to quit smoking and then say, well, I didn't smoke before I was 15 years old, so I'm going to take those 15 years of credit and keep smoking for another 15 years. Mm, that's a, a really great analogy. And I'm curious if there's any kind of watchdog or I guess we don't really have a, a federal integrity commission. So who is holding political parties to account when they do say things like that that aren't entirely correct? So the Climate Council uh, are doing a good job of, of documenting um, uh, just whether the, the government's policies are, are effective in addressing climate change. Uh, and, and there's also uh, other... I think the uh, IPCC just this last week have, um, have published their Working Group 3 report or, or at least uh, there's something, something coming out. Um, I'm not quite sure whether the full report is coming out yeah, but what that does, the Working Group Three report, is it looks at um, it's about climate action. Uh, are we acting uh, sufficiently to avoid the worst impacts of climate change? And and basically, their answer is no. We're actually on track to re- increase our emissions rather than reduce them dramatically, which is what we really need to do at the moment. Mm, it's certainly a, a grim picture, but some good resources there, as you said, from the Climate Council that I think people can turn to for some more reliable and straightforward information. Now, I think um, climate change is absolutely set to be a big issue in the upcoming federal election. So how do you think public opinions on climate have shifted since 2019? Definitely the public have gotten more on board accepting the reality of climate change and the need to act on it. So we are seeing greater uh, support for climate action and climate policy. And and one of the reasons for that is uh, people are now realising that climate change isn't this distant threat that's happening to polar bears or will happen to our grandchildren. It's happening right now. Like We are feeling the direct impact of climate change with mm. intensified bushfires, intensified floods, intensified heat waves. Um, the the Great Barrier Reef, um, you know, being damaged. All of these things are happening now and, and affecting Australians. Mm, it certainly feels much more real, I think, in, in 2022 than it did in 2019, pre the, the bushfires, pre these uh, so-called one in 100-year floods in Lismore. And how are we expecting the media to report on climate policy in the 2022 elections? Will it be any different from 2019? My expectation, uh, or at least my hope, is that it will be a lot more prominent uh, in 22 compared to 2019, where climate wasn't a very prominent issue. Now, we've since 2019, we've had bushfires over the entire country. We've had these devastating floods this year. Uh, we've had um, some record heat waves over the last few years, uh, particularly nighttime heat waves, which, which are dangerous for human health. And we've also seen Australia being called out on the world stage just, again, recently over the last few weeks. The UN Secretary-General criticised, singled out Australia for their lack of action on climate change. 
and uh, we saw um, our Prime Minister in Glasgow not having a very happy time <laughs> because because mm. Australia was is just a laggard on the world stage. So I think that all these factors will should combine to make climate change a much more prominent issue. I do hope it, it takes up some more headlines this time around and. I guess moving forwards as well, what advice would you give to our listeners on how they can, I guess, identify misinformation and increase their media literacy? So the the key way to avoid misinformation or identify misinformation and avoid being misled is to um, just familiarise yourself with the techniques being used to mislead. Uh, And that's actually been the main focus of my work is just raising public awareness of the different misinformation techniques. And if I can give a little plug, um, we actually developed a critical thinking game that's free to the public. We want as many people to play it as possible at crankyuncle.com. And the point of this game is you're learning the different techniques used to mislead so that when you spot them out in the wild, you're less likely to actually be misled. Fantastic. We'll definitely pop that resource in our show notes. But perhaps now, we, while we've got you on air, can you give us um, shed some light on what are the, the main techniques of misinformation? Sure. The acronym I use to help me and other people remember it is FLICK, F-L-I-C-C. These are the five main techniques of misinformation, and they stand for fake experts, which I mentioned earlier, logical fallacies, impossible expectations, which is demanding impossible standards of proof from the science. Cherry-picking, just um, selectively picking just little pieces of data and ignoring all of the evidence, and conspiracy theories. Mm, Well, some super helpful information there. I'm sure hopefully our listeners will get a lot out of that. John, thanks so much for joining us on air this morning. Pleasure to talk to you. Perfect. So that was John Cook from the Monash Climate Change Communication Research Hub speaking about climate misinformation and how it has been played out in the past with politics and in the media. You've been listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network. Today on the show we heard Jacob Gamble speaking with John Cook from the Monash Climate Change Communication Research Hub about how political parties and the media put out climate misinformation. And earlier we heard from Priya Kunjan, who spoke with Biami Williamson on the disproportionate vulnerability of Indigenous peoples to climate change and mitigation strategies that can be adopted for that. You'll find today's podcast and all the details and links from today's show at 3cr.org.au forward slash earthmatters. And if you're already listening via a podcasting service, we would love you to subscribe. And why not rate us and give us a review to help spread the word? Earth Matters would like to thank the Community Broadcasting Foundation for their generous support and the Community Radio Network for all their hard work in getting this show out to you. Earth Matters is produced at 3CR Community Radio in Fitzroy Nam, and we can be contacted at earthmatters3cr at gmail.com. And you can find us on your socials. That's all for today, but don't forget, tune in next week for more environmental and social justice stories. Thank you.
When you compare an old growth forest compared to a forest which is regrowing after a disturbance like logging, they're actually quite different ecosystems. Generally, like older, wetter forests slow down the path of fire, and this is actually quite a well-known phenomenon. Historically, these big, large fires have been quite rare, but what we've seen in the last 20 years is they're becoming quite a lot more common. So we've had three in the last 20 years. This is definitely because of climate change, which is making our ecosystems a lot drier and the fire weather more intense. We need to keep Radical Voices on air. Subscribe now. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 8377. There are many ways that you can keep up to date with 3CR news, events and programs. The 3CR website is a great spot to catch all your shows via audio on demand or scroll through our range of podcasts. It's also where you can sign up to our monthly newsletter, buy yourself a new t-shirt or check out archival audio from past broadcasts. Of course, we're also on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. But don't forget our mighty AM band. Catch us anytime on 855 AM. Keep in touch, 3cr.org.au.